From the WOUB Public Media Studios, this is 457SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our Southeast Ohio communities. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Atish Baidya. I'm Susan Tevin. And I'm Allison Hunter. And yeah, this podcast has been on hiatus for a while. Um, we didn't hear from you, but we hope you missed us. And we're doing some retooling, and while we're not quite finished with the changes, we had to make sure we added to the conversation around this midterm election. So here we are. Ohioans are voting on the governor's race, the attorney general, and other key state offices. There's a major crime and punishment versus drug rehab issue, school levies, and some might say the soul of the country. That's if you believe so goes Ohio, so goes the nation. Joining us is the go-to man for all things politics, Tom Suttis. He's a political analyst, historian, journalism professor, and member of the Cleveland Plain Dealers editorial board. We like talking to Tom because he's been covering politics in Ohio and looking at politics in Ohio for a very long time, and so he brings lots of historical context and perspective, which we love to hear about. Also on this podcast, Emily Vota, WOUB Public Media's arts and culture reporter, joins us to separate the fact from fiction regarding the supposed haunted happenings of Southeast Ohio. Enough to where I'm not going to Mount Nebo, let me just say that. Yep. <laughs> so whatever is true or not about that, I mean, sorry, but I don't play that. It's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. We'll get more on that later. <laughs> yeah. All right, it's election time, so we bring in our go-to guy for anything election, assistant professor, associate editor, and editorial board member for the Cleveland Plain Dealers, Tom Suttis. Thanks for coming in again. My pleasure to be here, always. And again, and again, and again. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in a midterm election. Um, We have a gubernatorial race. We have all these things going on. What are some of the key things that you're looking at, key races, key issues that you're looking at? Well, I'm looking at the, the governor's race. I think polling has indicated that in all probability the Senate race is not in any suspense at the moment. Senator Brown should be headed toward re-election. Um, the governor's race, it appears from some recent polling um, put out by the University of Akron's Bliss Institute, you may have seen it the other day, shows them basically too close to call between Mr. Cordray and Mr. DeWine. And that's a matter of great interest. I think there are several congressional races, including the 12th district around Metro Columbus, uh, which is very ardently being contested. And, of course, um, we should keep in mind always the possibility the legislature will have a different mixture of people in it, but I think the two parties will probably both continue to be relatively the same with Republicans running both the state Senate and the Ohio House. Um, I'm also interested in the state Supreme Court races because they kind of get underwatched sometimes, but I really think people do need to understand that those men and women have some really important things to say about our lives and how we live and what we do and how we do it. And that's something I specialized in when I was doing my thesis, as a matter of fact, for Supreme Court elections. So I think those are the main things. The, the, the folklore is that any given state's political party is going to, um, if it's a different party than the presidential party, is going to do better. But Ohio doesn't always follow the rules, and Ohio doesn't always follow the template. And so we have, we have had years, including Watergate in 74, when Governor Rose was brought back from exile, so to speak. Governor Gilligan was unseated. And also the fact that the state did give more than 400,000 votes to Governor, to Mr. Trump, rather, for president last time, which maybe is more than people would have expected. So it's, everything's in play, and it seems like things are very difficult to predict at this point, mm-hmm. about the governorship especially. Yeah. And with the governor, is that uh, historically, have you seen uh, what, what's happening now with the extremely tight race this close to the election? 
I was thinking about that. Thank you for that question. I don't know. I'm thinking back on it. I, I really don't because, as you recall, Governor um, Governor Strickland and Governor Casey did have a fairly close result in 2010, about 80,000 votes. But obviously, with Mr. Fitzgerald and um, Governor Kasich the last time around, uh, it was a blowout for the governor. And looking back on the Governor Taft's elections and re-elections, and Governor Warnish's elections and re-elections, no, I have not seen anything quite like this as far as this stage. We're only, what, about three weeks out maybe from right. Election Day? Right. So that seems unusual. And I think, I don't know the reasons for it except, but obviously forgetting the specific resumes of the candidates, which themselves can be impressive. Mr. DeWine's been in, on the statewide ballot pretty much ever since 1990. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a Yeah, that's right true. Too. But he's known. Right? <laughs> yes, he, that's he, correct. He's known. His name is kind of everywhere, and his son's on the Supreme Court, as a matter of fact, now, too. So that allows for some of it. But it's unusual for this in this state to have the same party keep the governorship to different governors consecutively. It's only happened twice in 100 years, 1934. In 1996, when Governor, 1998, when Governor Taft succeeded Governor Vornovich. Hmm. That's why the neck and neck thing kind of throws me off a little bit right now. But these things are volatile, as you guys know. There is a statewide issue on the ballot, and you've written about it in a, in a couple of uh, features. Issue one, it is basically criminal justice reform. Yes. To boil it down to its essence, essentially, those convicted of drug offenses, it would be, or possession rather, it would be a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Yes. And the goal would be to take the savings from these people not being incarcerated and put it into local treatment. Yes. And it's been a bit of a debate between the two major parties in Ohio and uh, as you wrote, the supporters of the issue didn't really think it was going to be like this, but it has turned into that. What have you seen as far as the supports for and against this issue? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean this in any sarcastic way, the establishment, law enforcement, judiciary, is very much against it. But I think there's a, a kind of a subtext to this that all of us, have, but because of the way it's been debated, miss a little bit. I think a lot of Ohioans are frustrated because they do think that they were very frustrated about the marijuana issue the last time around. It wasn't what they it wasn't ideal, and of course it was defeated because it would have conferred an effective monopoly on people and being able to sell the uh, dynamic herb. The other issues about treatment and stuff, and they're very important, by the way, because if you should know, resources for treatment in the state are nowhere near what they should be for people with serious drug problems, is kind of a proxy for a real issue about our state is behind the times, and if nothing else, this would make something more modern than we have right now about our approach to things. The other thing is that the state itself has kind of acknowledged over the years that we have too many people in state penitentiaries and state prisons for basically drug offenses that are not a matter of basically selling terrible things to little children or something, that they're possession or bulk possession uh, offenses. And prison costs are pretty high. We have 50,000-some people, depending on 1,000 either way, about in prison at any given time in the state. And I can remember a time we had maybe 40,000 in the 1980s and early 90s. Clearly, crime has gone down. Well, you look the FBI's Uniform Crime Report. So we are using, in some respects, prison in lieu of treatment, in effect, which is counterproductive and very expensive. I think just, just the instinct, which um, if I were any good, I probably would have won the lottery by now. We did me in Rio or something uh, in a penthouse. But <laughs> but I think that people are very frustrated about what they see as a fuddy-duddy state on these issues. And that maybe what amounts to a yes vote is a way of protesting the, the status quo without really going to the merits of the issue. The other side of that is that um, 
it's unusual because I don't think anybody in our lifetimes here has seen the judiciary, which has all these canons about speaking out on public issues, being as outspoken as they have been on this. I'm not saying it's wrong. I think maybe it's refreshing, but it's interesting to see this kind of unanimity. And um, when I see unanimity on a given issue, I kind of find I find that reason for suspicion about maybe there's something more to this than meets the eye. I don't mean conspiracies. I mean nuance. And so I don't think there's many polling lately, but I still think it's going to be a close call on what the voters do with this myself about this issue. Do you see the vote going regionally, uh, a difference between the way people in a, a rural area might vote on this as opposed to a, an urban area? Because it, these these different areas deal with the opioid crisis and justice reform in different ways. They, While it's the same state, they're experiencing these issues differently. Do you think that could have any effect on the, the final vote? I do think so, although I think there are paradoxes. Uh, I uh, write for our region. I thought it was interesting. I made a bet to myself, so to speak, although we know it's illegal to do that in Ohio probably, uh, that in the marijuana issue would be decisively defeated in Meigs County because if you believe the folklore, people in Meigs County sometimes grow their own um, green substances uh, for smoking and pipes and so forth. And sure enough, those precincts were, what I think those precincts were, were decidedly against it because it would have cut into the uh, economy. To answer your question, I do think that. I think that I think that Metro Ohio doesn't understand that rural Ohio knows better than you might think about the perils and the sadness and the, the words that were used with the tragedy of uh, opioid uh, addiction and abuse. Look at the obituaries in any small town paper, it's pretty obvious uh, what's going on there. And of course, the state does keep good stats on this. And uh, I think there will be that because, I, as I've said about other things, Medicaid expansion actually helps this somewhat because, if you know, before Medicaid expansion, if you were a person without dependents but were poor, your chance of getting mental health services in the state were almost zilch. You couldn't get them. You no know, one could give them to you for nothing or whatever. And this may help that along the treatment side of it. But there's something else in play here too. And I think, I think that Ohioans, both political persuasions are all political persuasions. And even in the middle of the road, I think our legislature has not been proactive on countless issues. We're always the last state. It seems as if to do various things. And when we do various things, we're almost forced into them like casino gambling, which I myself think, I've written to this, I think it's a false promise, but I don't really care who does it. And because the legislature kept messing around, they were getting to the point, we have now an amendment in the Constitution written by the casinos themselves, essentially, to benefit them. Understandably so, they spent 50 million bucks to get that on the, on the ballot. I think there's something else that needs to be, people don't talk about it because they're always afraid they're gonna either say the wrong thing or they're gonna be misinterpreted. There's lots of evidence of disparities in our state about racial justice, or racial, right. you could say racial justice in the criminal court system. I'm gonna ask that uh, along and, and those lines. Yes, it? it is, and I think that part of the ways this happens is sometimes people that otherwise if, again, I can't, this is induct, I mean, this is not empirical evidence, but look at the numbers, uh, disproportionate uh, imprisonment of African-American people in our state, and if you look at the drug offenses, it seems to me that if you can't find something else to bust somebody for, and you wanna bust somebody, you could probably find that, um, whether when you're in suburbia or out in, in the city itself. Right, and which areas are even being policed. Right, and so one of the things that's interesting about this issue, and I'm sure you guys have seen this as news people, is the number of um, legislative black caucus of Ohio has come out in favor of issue one. A number of um, people in various cities around the state, the legislators, African-American, have also come out in favor of the issue one. Celebrities, Mark Zuckerberg, John Legend. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think I think people think this is a what we're doing now you know, as a state is a dead end. It doesn't really serve anybody well, except maybe just the status quo and keep on keeping on with all this prison stuff and everything. That's not very eloquent, but I think there's a serious question there, and I think that um, 
I think people just think something's got to be done, and we don't see anyone being responsive about it at the state house. And that doesn't mean it's going to win or not. I don't have any idea who has the resources. On the other hand, it appears that the the pro side has significant advertising resources. I understand the arguments against it, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know myself at this moment how I'd vote on it because I, I know about this issue both in personal experience when I was younger and knowing people that were countercultural and some of whom got kind of in the, the dead-end alley of having really serious problems with our substances. But, but again, I think that our General Assembly has been doing things like passing bills to create new license plates and name highways for people, and sometimes they're great people too, they always are, but, but I don't know taking on the tough policy decisions of having to face this thing, and it's not a topic you can make everybody happy on. But that's the nature of making choices in public office, and I don't think they want to make too many choices that risk their right. their paychecks. There are very few people that have not been affected by um, opioid use and abuse. And right. so that is the part that makes me think that, no, issue one has a shot at passing because um, everyone wants something done, and just putting someone into the system, uh, into jail, which is not necessarily rehab, is not always a part of the incarceration to my understanding that the feeling is let's change let's change but then the other part of that i don't know it is like well at least you're held accountable at the very a misdemeanor you walk and you really don't necessarily have to be um directed towards well, treatment or right. that's one less touch point as a possible opportunity for treatment well there are two other things that come into play and this is with the metro areas that i mean even more than the rural areas the fact is that if someone has a a felony conviction, even if it's a total nonviolent possession of drugs thing where he or she wasn't affecting anybody else in any way, shape, or form. At the same time, we have an unemployment problem among younger people who don't have college degrees, and otherwise they get jobs because there's a good job market now for lots of jobs that you don't need a degree for. A felony conviction essentially makes that person's future very bleak indeed. It just does. Right. Any felony conviction, including one, I mean, some of them, if they're an axe murderer, maybe it should, but otherwise, no. Some child care, I mean, child Molestation and certainly sexual. No, no, or, no. I was going to uh, say the um, payment. If you don't pay, deadbeat parent. If child support. Child support. Yes, ma'am. Yes, if child support yes. can show up as a felony. And that's come up in some interviews with judges, by the way, for our endorsements. But the other thing, you also may have seen something that I think has to be given some credibility. Under state law, on a ballot issue, does things with state programming. The state budget office, OBM, uh, has to do a study of the, the, cost, the cost and benefits and so forth of the proposal. I have a lot of respect for the Office of Budget Management. They're, I think I used to cover the budget almost one of my daily beats, and I, it's a really very professional office. And the, the heads of it even are political appointees, but they also know the budget backwards and forwards, as a matter of fact, because they've had experience in the legislature as budget analysts. Their report was not overly enthusiastic about the possible savings to the state budget or to the taxpayers of getting people out of prison and putting them into treatment. I mean, they they didn't go into the whether treatment works or not, but the question is, will the money really be that much money gleaned from non-imprisonment? And um, OBM skepticism is, should be given some consideration, I think, about the savings aspect of it or about whether the money would really end up helping benefit people that need treatment in lieu of incarceration. We saw with uh, the marijuana situation there was the it was a, an issue on the ballot that failed, but it seemed that that sort of that that the conversation around it sort of spurred the legislature to do something, and so we got so we got yeah. the medical mar- marijuana program, right, which is behind and going to effect, but <laughs> but at least it spurred lawmakers to to take some action and to do something because 
it being an issue being on the ballot, the topic being on the ballot, uh, the the conversation we were having, um, sort of was like a, a red light for for, for yes. politicians. If issue one doesn't pass, but gets a significant amount of support or votes at, uh, on doing on in November, do you think that that might spur lawmakers to do something about the issue, to talk about and take the issue more seriously in a certain kind of way? I think it might, but it depends on leadership. My recollection is that one of the reasons that the marijuana medical marijuana thing got addressed was because leadership may have been actually Speaker Rosenberg, former Speaker Rosenberg, and the Senate president said after the election, we're going to address this. And that's my recollection. I could be wrong about that. And if the legislative leaders take the lead, and whoever the governor happens to be takes the lead on this, that could make a difference. I think if it's, I don't think it will happen spontaneously. Um, I do think given that, uh, assuming Speaker um, Smith is re-elected speaker. He's from Gallia County, and he certainly knows this region very well, and he's had long-time association with Halzer Health System. And so he'd have lots of familiarity with um, some of the challenges we've had in Appalachian, Ohio, about opioids and so forth, and young men and women being basically having their lives destroyed. Um, but I don't know, because um, the other side of it is if it's defeated and Mr. Cordway's elected, I suspect his budget would probably try to address this as well. But what it takes, most importantly, any issue like this, or any issue that's controversial, whether it's something about women's health, and I mean, or anything like that, either way, it takes leadership, uh, a leadership person to, to just kind of um, blaze the trail on it. And so it's possible the Speaker and the Senate President will do this. I, I haven't asked them if they will or not, but I'm sure they're going to wait and see what the results are. And also what the results are, if it's lopsided, whether it's very close, and whether it's regional or not, whether it's use the pattern you guys mentioned earlier about urban versus rural, comes up in this. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm not sure anybody has promised, though, maybe they should, if he or she's against it, that they will try to craft something that addresses this issue. Because they're not really denying there's an issue here, I don't think. I mean, a problem, a social challenge. And even families that are affluent have had this happen in them, and, and, and let alone other families that are having just getting by. So I just wish they would get their priorities straight, I guess, and I think that would be one way to do it. But your question is a good one. I, they did intact. But again, the other hand, the other hand of the marijuana thing, this thing becomes so encumbered with, like more complicated than a tax return. You have to do this and that, and then you know, it just hasn't gotten done yet. It should have been over with by now. Mm-hmm. You know, out there for people who want to avail themselves of that for their their, their uh, illnesses. How do you feel about electing Supreme Court judges? Well, funny you should ask that. I uh, historically, for example. Um, the Plain Dealer, among others, as editorial always supported so-called merit selection. Um, I, uh, on balance, I think it's, I think for right now it's a check on the balance, but it, there has to be more information we allow the voters to get from the candidates. The idea of running and not being able to say anything much is, is just absurd in many ways. There's another question, and it's an interesting one, because we do have a Supreme Court now that does have four women and three men, which so in that respect it's kind of had some gender equity. But as I was writing, checking the other day, and people don't always realize this, we've had several black judges appointed to the Supreme Court of Ohio uh, by um, Democratic governors, actually. Only one's ever been elected to the court all this time, and this is the year 2018. That was Judge Duncan in 1970. Governor Rose appointed him to a vacancy. Judge Duncan, later a federal judge and a very well-respected guy, ran and was elected in 1970, but he was unopposed, which wasn't uncommon in those days, by the way. Governor Gilligan appointed an African-American judge Lloyd Brown, and didn't keep the seat when another guy named Brown, 
Bob Brown from Youngstown ran against him. And of course, uh, I have to say one of the most qualified people in the history of the state, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, uh, ran as a candidate of the Democratic Party in 1990, I think, and she was defeated. And then Governor Strickland appointed um, uh, a great judge, um, uh, an alumnus of this university, um, and um, she wasn't retained, and she lost as well to a very conservative person because, again, you really can't, you really can't say much when you run. And now it's ironic, again, they're all speaking out about issue one, although some of them, not all of them are. Again, my thesis was about endorsements and editorial endorsements of Supreme Court judges. The research shows a couple of interesting things, one of which is that, again, this was, this was completed in the 90s. The Republican voters generally better informed than Democrats are about judges. That's number two, in counties like Cuyahoga, which has 35 common police judges in the general division alone, not counting probate and juvenile, not counting uh, domestic relations, you can't keep track of the judges even if you are a member of Mensa. You have to go into the voting booth with some kind of a list or something, you know, who's who. I'm still hesitant about merit selection because I still think it's the insiders picking other insiders in some respects. And I'm not sure we're going to get representation adequately of people of color, women, and others if we go that route. And that's why, for now, I happen to think it's the best of a bad situation is to continue with it, with electing judges of the Supreme Court of Ohio. I wanted to ask you about the, we mentioned the 12th District, uh, Troy Balderson yes. and Danny O'Connor. Um, first of all, can you talk historically about this weird thing where we had Pat T. Berry, who's been in the <laughs> play, number one thing, has been Republican for 35 years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been held Republican. But now we've had, he dropped off, and we put Troy Balderson by a razor-thin margin, and now we're, a very short time later, we're voting again on this. Has that happened in, in any sort of consistent way? Have you seen that before happen? There have been a couple cases, uh, instances in which I think over in the district, over in Middletown and uh, Hamilton, where Buzz Lucas resigned, and it was a special election, and it happened kind of real fast, and then the successor only served for a while, but the party, there was really no chance the party was going to change as far as the idea of that member of Congress. Um, that's the one that comes to mind. I have not seen that, and also the level of intensity for a special election, because because that district includes lots of northern Franklin County, which, again, speaking off the top of my head, which is never a good idea, but um, there are people up there who may be Republican in the general sense, but they very much... They're not particularly enthusiastic about the president, especially because of the things he says about women and so forth and so on. And they're affluent people, but they are not in that kind of political perspective. And I believe the dispatches analyzed the results and found out that uh, Mr. O'Connor carried Northern Franklin County part of the district very handily, and that it was really kind of decided in the other districts by very close votes in Delaware County. Uh, Morrow hasn't got that many voters to begin with, I mean, relatively speaking, and he only has part of Muskingum County, his home county, in the district. What I think is interesting is the intensity of this uh, election. Right. I was going to ask about in terms of turnout and, you know, the Democrats are, yep, they're fired up. And then the uh, Republicans, not ready to go. Um, I've been wanting to say that, so I know it's kind of corny. But the um, but that idea that um, Republicans were fired up after 2016, they've got a, yeah. much of what they wanted. So that tends to have the other party a bit fired up. Yeah. Um, and so I think we learned that voter turn uh, voter registration, excuse me, yeah. is up. That going to be the thing? Like, are people really? Well, the old rule of thumb, and I know I've said it many, I say everything too many times in the column because people have need to whatever, and I'm, I'm tend to be redundant personality. But a speaker arrived, the twenty-year speaker of the Ohio House said he had been around for everything beginning in '58 when he went to the legislature and he left in '94. 
if Democrats turn out, the rule of thumb is higher turnouts advance Democratic candidacies. Right. And so if that happens, it happens. Now, what I don't know is whether or not, uh, certainly uh, I know that in the urban areas, um, people of both uh, racial backgrounds and traditions do have, tend to have really organized get out the vote efforts. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen in suburbia and other places. If the turnout is higher, it has to favor Democrats, all things considered, maybe, depending. And, and the other irony is, I understand just from reading wire reports that uh, requests for uh, early ballots are, are up significantly. And that's an interesting sign itself. But um, I don't know if people take advantage of the fact that it's so easy now in Ohio, really speaking, it is to vote, I mean, comparatively speaking to other states. It's kind of a new world that way, too, for people to get used to that idea. If I, having done work on the subject different ways for many, many years now, got to the point after the Kavanaugh thing, I'm not getting into the specifics of that, the whole thing of saying, I'm not sure I could deal with this much of this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. I have to think other people might have that same thought cross their minds. I'm, I never miss voting myself ever. I'm mm -hmm. not bragging, I just never have. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I have to think this, if I was thinking that, other people who don't, are not nearly as in, in, have a history of covering it would say, oh man, I just want to wash my hands of this whole thing and not do anything about any political stuff for a while. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Well, I will say, and this is a good opportunity for a, a shameless plug, on October 30th, there will be a debate of the 15th Congressional District. Oh, yes? Um, and it's happening on uh, Ohio University's campus, but you will be able to watch that and hear that on WUB.org. Excellent. And on WUB-FM. So um, that's the Steve Stivers and Rick Neal contest. Yes. Interesting, interesting candidates, interesting, uh, yeah. interesting district, and so forth. Uh, and uh, and we'll get to ask those environmental, yeah, oh, those questions specific to this region. That's a very good point. And, yeah, um, and uh, the northeastern corner of of the state in terms of yeah. the extraction industry and who seems to be um, benefiting from it. Um, but on that, have the, have the Democrats overall have they done enough to? change the tide if, the, if, if, if that's what is to happen? You know, honestly, I don't know. And of course, I, I just, I hate to say it because it just, something just seems different this year. And I don't know why that is. I'm saying that because maybe it's just me getting older. I don't know. But well, first of all, in the down ticket offices, again, even with the Supreme Court, unfortunately, I don't think many voters pay much attention unless if he or she's a lawyer, they pay attention to AG. If he or she's a CPA, they pay attention to auditor. If you're a banker, you pay attention to the treasurer. If you are um, an election official, board of elections official, secretary of state, but most people don't, you know. So then you get to the governor's thing. If the Senate race were more competitive, you probably see an issue is being maybe torn apart one way or the other and debated more robustly than they have been, as opposed to some of the specifics about domestic relations from 1986 and so forth with uh, one candidate. On the governorship, which should be kind of the, the forum for these things you're talking about, what I see a lot of and hear a lot of is the candidates talking about what so-and-so did 10 years ago. I mean, you were for right. against the Affordable Care Act. You were for against this. You, when you were attorney general, you did do this, you didn't do that, and so forth, as opposed to being prospective. And we, I think someone said one time, it's a state office. I think it, someone said it was Rhodes. And, of course, everything that's ever been said is attributed to him because he was governor for so long. When people elect a governor if they're electing a management. They want a manager. They want someone that's going to put the, fix the potholes in I-71 and I-77. Has that ever happened? No. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they do actually. And, or, or who gets make sure the school payments go to the school districts and make sure your license tags get sent to you on time and that sort of thing. The other thing is that people buy vote for hope. They vote for the future. They vote for something better going to happen to them or their families or their children or their spouses or those they love. 
Um, it's going to happen better for them because so-and-so is going to be positioned to help things make better for them. And I don't know who's made the better case that way because you certainly can make the argument that uh, the AG candidate for governor Republican DeWine has been very visible for many years and he has tackled issues like, for example, sexual assault, apprehension of uh, from, from people not examining the evidence uh, right, kits the and so kits forth. Yeah. At the same time, Mr. Mr. Coder is obviously a defense, defender of the consumer as job in the Consumer Federal Financial Protection Bureau. I guess you'd have to ask yourself, just as we sit here, which of those two major, major candidates seems like the person likely to be a good manager of the state government? And number two, uh, which of them is likely to inspire a feeling in a given voter, he, she, or they, voters, uh, they're going to make change for the future? And um, what I think is interesting, frankly, is this happened with Congress at the beginning of the 90s with the uh, contract with America, the kind of nationalization of issues. We're talking about health care a lot in this campaign, and I don't understand why, because we have Medicare ex Medicaid expansion. Neither is going to re retract it, and actually it would be politically impossible to do it anyway, I think. And so it gets into things like federal cuts in Medicare. Well, that's a congressional thing, not a state thing anyway. And so I know that emotionally we all care about that issue, but it isn't really at stake, I don't think, in my opinion. I'm probably in the minority on that in Ohio itself. I think we are at stake on such things as decent funding for schools, K through 12 schools, decent medical services for people to have opiates and other problems, mental health services and so forth, a better way to treat offenders as opposed to just locking him or her up, them up, and also um, some approach to the future about such things as job training and so forth. Uh, all these underclass of people of all racial backgrounds that don't have a college degree, having a hard time finding jobs, and at the same time employers are demanding, there's signs in front of businesses in some parts of the state saying, help wanted. And that's a good thing, but they don't have the help they need to get that. And so I don't know which of those two guys, use a shorthand, is better positioned to inspire that in a given voter. I do know that, of course, Mr. Cordray is um, younger. Um, I think he'll be 60 next year. Is that right? Or maybe 70. I don't know. 60. I'm sorry. 159. And I think that's right. And, and obviously, Mr. DeWine is older, but again, there's so many intangibles because that's, I, I think that the public itself, that's why the polls reflect this kind of indecision on the whole thing. I think it's interesting, though, I'll say this much, and one of the realities was that um, obviously when Mr. DeWine ran in the primaries, he had all these caveats, it seemed to me, about um, Medicaid expansion, and now he's basically been on the record as saying he's not trying to roll it back when he becomes, if he becomes governor. But I think the larger issue is which of them is going to can really prepare us for the future as a state, for the changes that are coming down with bioscience, all kinds of things, even things, definitions of laws, LGBTQ things, uh, people in um, sexual reassignment or sexual transformation, gender, gender transformation, gender reassignment, things such as uh, technology and healthcare and all these other things. I mean, are we going to keep being kind of an also ran or just, oh, I'll do it if you do it kind of state, or are we going to lead the way? And I don't know who's better doing, doing that more comprehensively. I may have an opinion about that, but it, it so much depends on everything from who you appoint to your cabinet to who you have as your under assistant deputy so-and-so in the Bureau of Widgets. It does. And that's where experience can matter quite a bit. And again, I don't know the answer to that. I just don't feel the passion out there. I would feel an election that should be this contested given the national passion. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe we're weary of the, everything that happens nationally. And so, like you said earlier, but it's just like, it's a head spinning, uh, um, information cycle in yes. terms of what's happening nationally and so whether it's outrage or you're defending your candidate or your choices by the time you get down to the local you're like everything's fine right so 
I don't know. I maybe don't know. maybe it's that each one of us as a human being has a certain quantity of, I'd say, passion mm-hmm. about things. And mm-hmm. I hate to use sports metaphors because it's so I'm not to think about sports anyway. But let's say you had your four, you know, you had your four quarters of a football game right. and it's tied. How you many overtimes overtime, are we doing? Really gonna, you know, How I'm many tired. are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I mean, I think that's part. I think I think frankly, again, p- better for worse, the president inspires lots of passion, different ways in people. The Kavanaugh thing did too. And I think we're like a tube of toothpaste has been squeezed real hard as people sometimes, mm-hmm. just in terms of our political um, um, excitement. One of the reasons we have a government's picked in off years is because one of the theories was, I think, when they did it in 56, 58, 54, was we could pay more attention during non-presidential years, mm-hmm. which should be true. Right. Except that we're having all this other stuff going on as well. It's 2018. That's <laughs> right. no longer true. <laughs> and there's something else happening, too, which I would put in for a plug for the kind of journalism that you guys do, and I'm not saying because I'm sitting here. To some extent, there has been a, a reduction in the amount of coverage sure. of state governments and of local governments too. That hasn't happened, but it depends. It's very it's very spotty depending on where it is happening, where it's not happening. And I think people conflate things that happen in Washington with things that are happening in Harrisburg and Columbus and Lansing and all sure. that sort of stuff. And I think that makes it hard for people to, to parse out which is which and is it really, for example, in this case, is it John Kasich's fault or is it is it uh, President Trump's fault that something happened sure. in a given we don't like that it happened. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it, too. I call it the nationalization of news. Everything is in Washington. Everything is maybe New York, but the U.N. or something or whatever it happens to be. And people don't see the, the specific changes that happen with individuals. Um, it's like, for example, a story that you had the other day, um, my coworkers had, and I've, you probably covered this here, is that under the, um, the welfare laws, counties can, the state can require certain people in some counties to have a work requirement and others not. It just so happens that some of the counties that have the work requirement are urban counties in the state, and the rules don't. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, maybe there's some philosophically, beautifully philosophical reason for that, including the fact that there probably is less work available in some ways in, in small counties. But does it not occur to you that, well, why is that decision made? And it hasn't got explored. I mean, frankly, we've explored it, but I'm not sure we will explore that very deeply. What's, what's this all about? Why is this happening? Well, you could argue it's probably because of uh, attitude toward people of color, or maybe not, or people of uh, different backgrounds, or even new immigrants, or something to our country. But th- the analytics of state government aren't happening as much as they used to happen. So speaking about local stuff um, and the connections there, we have a few local issues, um, specifically school issues. Yeah. We have Alexander has been on the ballot many times and still can't get a win for that one um the levy and then we have a new operating levy facilities levy for athens mm-hmm. and then we have others around the state are what is your take on on school levies those things and namely the ones that get athens always seems to get whatever levy they ask for alexander can't get a levy to save their butts so <laughs> um do you have an idea on on school levies and local levies and how voters look at those things i think people look at uh, i know idea what will, no will happen i live in the athens district but i have no idea what will happen on either of those uh, you have to think that alexander's probably got bleak prospects just given the history i kind of changed my mind about this over many years i think the state has failed utterly to respond to the devolved case in the first place i think levy actions are not a bad thing the levy elections do give taxpayers control over one kind of taxation but they can't control the sales taxes readily, the state income taxes readily, the gasoline taxes readily, or all the other taxes we pay. So schools become kind of a, a proxy to stick the pin in sometimes, I think. for I don't like all these taxes. And also your tax bill comes to you, mailed to you by the county for your school district tax. But your income tax gets deducted before you ever get the money. Your sales tax gets deducted at the register before you ever buy the, the product or service. It's visible taxation. It becomes kind of a lightning rod. And I think that we still depend too heavily on property taxes to support our public schools. 
Um, and I think it's good to have local control as far as it goes, but I'm not sure we need 610 school districts in a state this size either, uh, which duplicates all kinds of things. I, I agree with you. I think you have to think, given Athens City's residents' commitment to education and to culture and all that sort of thing, that the levy probably will do okay, but you have no way of knowing that because it seems like there's a fair amount of public. Right. This seems a, a, a very um, visible and vocal yeah. vote no campaign. I know they're um, and targeting the population that usually is expected to not vote, but there's a, a you will not target. They're now targeting car, college students who live off campus. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen some stories about yeah, that. Yeah, and um, you won't uh, be able to buy if you if you vote yes or however they put it you, that's fewer beers for you <laughs> or that's fewer slices of pizza so they believe they're speaking the language to my understanding there's a um a marketing professor in the school of business who is um very vocal and may be the person behind some of maybe that it's a, campaign maybe it's a class project <laughs> which would be weird but the idea that uh, with school levies in Athens um, not being because people don't like the idea of having one campus. Well, I think that's part of it. I think, and I think, but I also I have to say, and this is the, this is one of the ironies of of well, I, of life. It's understandable people would rather have schools that their kids can almost walk to or see sure. from their live, I, and that's and that's human nature. But I also think we have this problem in this country we don't face up to, which is that home values, which are most people's big investment, which you've heard 50 billion times, are tied to the school district or the school, the local school, the catchment area that the house is in. And so when you affect that in any way, it's like a Rubik's Cube. You push one thing and something else changes too. I think that's part of it. But I also think that, I contrast it with this, and it's not the same thing I realize that. One of the, there are blessings to being in Ohio. One of them can be a beautiful fall if we ever had one. Uh, and the second one is we have the best public libraries in the United States. That's bar none. And I was there in that. I mean, I wasn't part of the process. That happened because of people of both parties mm -hmm. sitting together and saying, look, we've been doing this since 1930-31. It was the first Bob Tapp, by the way, that helped make it happen in the first place with state support for mm -hmm. libraries in some, some degree. Let's build on this. And they had people and they had the establishment, frankly, the big city establishments got together and said, look, it's in everyone's interest, whether you're poor, rich, black, white, brown, whatever, to have good libraries. So let's work out a way to do this, give them a designated slice of a state tax base with uh, income taxes and so forth. And now we have libraries so good, kids, stories we had coming from Pennsylvania because their, their, school, their libraries aren't open in the evenings and stuff, mm. or on weekends, coming to Youngstown up to Warren and asked to be able to do their homework because the libraries are there. It's going to take people in leadership positions to do more than just talk like, oh, I, I care about education, I care about the kids. Sure. It means some rich people, basically, and some leadership people, and some people, even with a tier, she's a sports star. Actually, LeBron James kind of did that with his school investment in Akron. Right. Saying, look, this matters. We have to be together as a common people to work this out. They could work it out. I mean, they could, on some level, work it out very readily if they want to take a risk. Because there's no reason, given the wealth of this country, when we can spend $250 million on one airplane for the Air Force, or one, now they say it's a bargain at 110 million, the F-35, we can't afford to give kids the opportunity for really decent schooling. We also got to recognize that kids that come from tough backgrounds need more schooling resources than those that don't. And in theory, we do that, but we don't do it really. And I think it's going to take someone that's really brave to get up there and use the bully pulpit of the governorship or the legislature to make that happen. So levy elections wouldn't be as critical 
to a school or a school child's educational prospects. I think it's interesting too, by the way, maybe I'm missing on this, I haven't necessarily seen any big business people, there are a few in this town, where big nonprofit leaders, institutions say, this is vital for the future of this town, and we ought to pass this thing. Or we, or I have concerns, these are my concerns, but this, that, and the other thing. Um, I, it, it's, it's uh, again, I, I used to have my doubts about this, but again, I begin to understand, um, and I have children myself, but I begin to understand the way that if you don't equip a young man or woman pretty early in life, and to say, as I, and I've written this, and I mean it, it, yes, it is, in fact, we have a parenting problem in our country to some extent, but, and that's true, but we just can't walk away from it and say, well, oh, I can't do a thing about it, it's just fate. It's predestination. We're all Calvinists now, I mean, you know, so to speak. About education, I don't think that's rational. We, we can put people in space and everything else. So the problem here, I, I gather, is that, um, my, this is my reading, I do vote here and never fail to vote and pay attention to stuff, is that this is seen partly as a class thing. We have schools that are now stratified somewhat by economic, social economic uh, circumstance. And that one of the goals of this is to kind of de-stratify by having kids from different backgrounds mixed up in the same place. That's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. The interesting thing is, politically you'd say that's a liberal thing to want to do. And I thought this town was wildly liberal. Hmm. But somehow it gets too close to home, that's not the same thing. And I'm not making fun of anybody, but I'm saying that's one of the ways which politics can has to be adapted to circumstances and also don't allow for differences. I, I continue to think that as I've sometimes written, the office holder, whether he or she is governor or house speaker or something, or even a local official who solves the problem of, of getting a school funding thing we can all buy into or should buy into and or the cost of other kinds of education is going to be the politician who can be in office for his or her entire life because they get reelected on that basis if we did a good job. But it's such a sticky mess. You know, if you ever looked at the school funding formula and try to figure out why we get certain amounts of money and why we don't get certain amounts of money to give it, it's like, it's, you need a computer to even look at the thing. And um, at the same time, I think, uh, and I've heard this from students, I didn't have to go through this because I was, well, it was a long time ago and I was in non-public schools anyway. The testing regime is basically gets in the way of anybody really I think it probably drives teachers and kids both into exhaustion, frankly. It doesn't really prove anything except it's a way of saying, are you teachers doing your jobs? Well, I don't think that's how you measure that mm-hmm. at all. And I think we've all had teachers we've loved that have made a difference in our lives. I certainly, I don't make no bones about it. Some I did and have, and they were wonderful. I mean, it did me a world of good. They had no, didn't get them a thing except just the, their idealism, I guess, or something, or they thought they'd help this poor bear. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, we devalue that mission too. What an important mission is next to being a parent, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and so we gotta, we gotta walk our talk, is what I'm saying. So while we're talking about politics on this podcast, Tuesday, October 30th, WOUB will be live streaming and radio simulcasting a debate between Democrat Rick Neal and Republican Steve Stivers. They're both candidates for Ohio's 15th Congressional District. The debate is taking place in Ohio University's Nelson Dining Hall on the university's Athens, Ohio campus. When we come back, Emily Votal, WOUB Public Media's arts and culture reporter, joins us for some spooky news. <laughs> As if politics isn't scary enough. Right. <laughs> so it's almost Hallow's Eve, and apparently, from what people have told us, Ohio is pretty haunted. 
And so we sent our culture and arts reporter, Emily Vota, to dig up some dirt and find out where are all these haunted places and why are they haunted? So Emily Vota, thank you for joining us. You get yeah, what he said, sure. dig up some dirt. That was great. That? that was great. Thank you. I'm great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Aaron. You are. That's, there you go. Yeah, I did a lot of cursory resource research on some supposedly haunted places. But um, uh, I guess the, the probably the main one is the one that is up on the, the hill there as you're driving to town, the, the former Athens Lunatic Asylum. Now referred to as the Ridges. Now referred to as the Ridges. Um, yeah, when it opened, it was a really uh, progressive, like, uh, hospital for sure. I mean, you know, it was built to house about 550 people, and the problems really began around the 50s and 60s when there were about 2,000 people living there. And by that point, a lot of the uh, wards were in disrepair. Um, people were not being treated real well in general. Um, and that's also when uh, the, the famous uh, lobotomy doctor, uh, Walter Freeman, um, who didn't know he was a monster, but did make frequent. <laughs> <laughs> he made frequent. They say these things. Yeah, I'm he sure he know. thought he was uh, helping. helping. Yeah, helping he really he legitimately did. And he hmm. would come and check in That's on patients for years. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. But uh, so, I mean, that was happening all throughout the 50s until the invention of Thorazine and other uh, uh, psychiatric drugs, which made it possible to um, administer psychiatric treatment on an outpatient basis. And that's when a lot of, I mean, the population of the asylum went down. But uh, some crummy stuff happened there around the mid-century. As Allison has alluded to, probably the mistreatment of all these people has something to do with the reputation of being haunted. Is that is that safe to say? Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I mean, there are uh, numerous things. I mean, there's a there's a graveyard up there that there's a lot of rumors like, oh, why don't the why don't the tombstones have names on them? Well, it's because the tombstones came in on trains and they couldn't like engrave the. There were so many people living there at a certain point. It's not like they could, you know, engrave the different uh, headstones unless somebody's family was was really wealthy. And um, a lot of those people didn't have a lot of family. Some people were committed by the state. Um, there, I mean, there are definitely some sad stories. I mean, any place where there's a large collection of people, especially people um, who are um, identified as being mentally ill. Some of them definitely weren't mentally ill, but um, if, if, if you're going to put a bunch of people in that uh, kind of setting, I mean, there's going to be some bad, bad energy, and there's some sad stuff that happened there. There's still tours. I know once upon a time that people would go to the ridges and, and kind of ghost hunt on their own. And that uh, became a problem because, um, one, not only people getting hurt on it in dilapidated buildings, but also causing damage. Yeah, yeah. And probably the most, I'd say probably the most famous case of people uh, trespassing up at the ridges um, used to be at the old uh, tuberculosis ward up there, which has been since demolished. Because why would you want to go hang out where there used to be a, t a whole bunch of people who had TB? Because the point. stain. The stain, yeah. That's, well. Oh, <laughs> the stain. The stain supposedly originates from uh, a uh, asylum patient named Margaret Schilling. She's a real person. There's actual documentation of this story um, in old uh, Athens uh, news newspapers, which is not the case for most of these stories. But um, she did she did disappear um, on December 2nd, 1978. Um, that's a little bit past the mid-century point that we were talking about earlier, but things still weren't in great shape, and there were still wards that were dilapidated. 
unheated, hadn't been in for years and years, and there's lots of people just wandering around, basically. And um, so Margaret disappeared on December 2nd, 1978, and she was found about a month later in one of the abandoned, unheated wards, which may or may not have been the TB ward. Um, she was found completely naked, and she did fold her clothes next to her body, which is something like a mentally ill person would do. That's not even, I don't think anything that creepy was happening to her. She was probably just totally in a state of despair. And um, supposedly there's a stain where she died. Yeah, supposedly the stain's there, and it's cursed, and you can still see her uh, ghost there sometimes in the in the room that she used to occupy. Some people say in the TB ward. It's kind of hard to say. I was going to say because the TB ward now... Uh, gone. Not gone. It's yeah, it's gone. Yeah, that's where the stain supposedly was. Oh, okay. Right, but and no matter how many try times they tried to clean the stain, it would always it would. return. <laughs> yep. A lot of the halls, the residence halls on the campus, on Ohio, the Ohio University Athens campus, are supposed to be haunted. There are a lot. I mean, it's a very old campus. Obviously, this is an old university, and uh, probably the most like most haunted one is uh, Wilson Hall, supposedly, hmm. um, if you believe any of this stuff at all. And um, there, there are several, there's nothing's real verified about Wilson Hall, but supposedly in room 428 in particular, which is a sealed off room now, but it's also really? probably, it is sealed off, but. Wait a minute, Wilson is on which green? It's on West Green. Oh, I think I heard about that. I'd never been on West Green and I it was here years ago. So never, what? Ha- okay, oh, but sorry. what happened in yeah. well, Wilson? Well, <laughs> the room is still f- sealed off. That's creepy. It is. It is creepy. It is creepy. It's no longer. People can't. I mean, there was a ghost hunting show that came here in the '90s that really exacerbated this like sure. legend because it was just like super. It was. It was real silly. Dramatic, I watched sure. it and it was real silly, but um, <laughs> very '90s too. But uh, there's a couple things about Room 428, which is not. A, you can't. Nobody lives there anymore. It, it, but uh, it also kind of looked like it was a utility closet, honestly. So I don't know. What are you going to believe? But supposedly, someone in the 70s did commit suicide in that fourth room floor, and their ghost was supposed to be haunting the hall. Those rumors were percolating throughout the you know time after this young person, this tragedy happens, and this person commits suicide. And uh, after that suicide, in the years following, um, supposedly another student did move into that room. And uh, that student was allegedly Debbie Ralph Southall, who was interviewed by The Post about her, quote, dark magic that she was doing in the room, which didn't really sound like dark magic to me. But she, she, she did uh, she did have an altar in there. I don't Hell know. Yeah. For the hell <laughs> is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and she, she, she said she used it for meditation, but the altar was essentially a table with cloth and some candles on it. But the rumor is about Debbie, and this did not actually happen to Debbie, but this is the rumor that's percolated since she did live there when she was an undergrad, is that she um, was uh, doing a... But she was practicing dark magic in particular. She was uh, practicing, trying to practice astral projection, which is a esoteric term used to describe willful out-of-body experiences. Oh, my God. And she supposedly uh, died while either being possessed by something or, um, you know, something, she something bad happened. She couldn't come back happened. to her body. She couldn't come back to her body. and She, she got she, stuck in the astral plane. Astral plane. <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> and, 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 and there are reports that she, she committed suicide. Nobody saw her for three days. RAs got worried, checked the dorm, and they did find her in there. It was a real gruesome scene. But that's not true. That's not true. She didn't actually do that. That never happened, but that's definitely a big... Because she's alive. She's, al- she's well, alive. I mean, and she was, she, was, she was interviewed years after her supposed suicide or whatever. The, the year didn't add up on the story at all. There's no way this is true. There might be something creepy in room 428 because it seems like a lot of weird stuff does happen there. Um, 
you know, in Wilson Hall, people do get a lot of the, the classic weird stuff you see happening supposedly at a lot of these halls, which is like stuff, doors opening and closing all the time. People um, just hearing weird things. People knock, hearing knocking on their door and opening it. No one's there. People just seeing weird stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, no matter. And, and, and OK, this is the other thing. People say that Wilson Hall in particular is at the center of a pentagram of cemeteries in the region. But you could make that up about any points on any map. So that's not really anything either. But I got a lot of other the haunted bones. resident halls. Resident yeah. halls. Send your ghost <laughs> stories about resident halls to Allison Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> you better not. Emily, you sound very skeptical. <laughs> I mean, okay, what's the other things ones? are not adding up. Um, well, there's Washington Hall's really interesting one because supposedly a whole team of female basketball players haunt that. Serious, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's kind of silly sounding. I couldn't find any real verification of this, but the as the tale goes, there was a bus full of uh, female basketball players who did perish in a terrible car accident while attending a basketball camp at Ohio University over the summer, and now you can still hear basketballs being dribbled around, laughing at night, and especially um, around the arch that connects uh, Reed and Washington Halls. Well, it sounds like they're having a good time, at least. I, I guess so, and this has been reported as quick. I found some things from, like, 2015 students talking about this. That's Did that really happen? I the, couldn't find any real verification that, uh, of that. That, that there was a newspaper, right? right? Yeah. That a basketball camp. That yeah, yeah. we that would be something that, that would be, be talked about. Yeah, forever. Okay. Yeah, there right. would be like a, th- be a right. Thing. Like if there was a camp here and kids came here to that camp and then they died on the way home. Yeah, so or we don't know when the thing. basketball camp was. Like what year? No, no. no. So this, it, yeah. I think that it's didn't happen. Gone. That's I call bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Probably the creepiest thing I found with Washington Hall with, like, recent students talking about was uh, students, like, they'd be sleeping in their dorm room beds and they'd wake up because the whole bed was, like, shaking. And that's, like, a real oh, creepy, mm-hmm. classic poltergeisty type thing. Like, yeah. I don't know about that. Th- and then I have another one that's a little bit, had a little bit more meat to it. I, I still couldn't find any official documentation of this, but um, in, in Crawford Hall in 1993, at least I have a year, a young student named Laura Bensick reportedly fell from her fourth floor dormitory room in Crawford Hall and died. I don't know if it was a suicide or what, but um, there have been a lot of reports throughout the 90s and early 2000s of, like, a young woman that people don't recognize just coming and, like, hanging out, will come hang out with them in their dorm for a minute and then just not seem to be aware of her surroundings and, like, leave, which is, like, pretty creepy. Wait a minute, so someone comes into your dorm room that you don't recognize. You don't recognize. This is fine, right? just like, that's fine. That's cool. But there's this, uh, this is a campus of 20,000 people. And like, pe- I mean, in your dorm room, like in your actual room. All the, re- yeah. the reports on that were just like kids, you know, like, oh, I was like taking a nap, left my dorm room open because my, you know, whatever, my roommate was coming back, and then like this lady came and like sat down. I was trying to talk to her, just you know, just some chick showed up, and then she just like wanders off or whatever. None of this is very substantiated, but it's something, mm. something to think about. Is Crawford on East? The Crawford Green too? is on South Green. I remember that for sure because I lived mm. on South Green. Hmm. But, uh, that could be just anything. Yeah. <laughs> like so, a, a student out of it, somebody high a little bit. Yeah, sleep like walking. Sleepy nap or something. Right. Ambient, <coughs> ambient walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like who, yeah. Exactly. I did that to my roommate once. I sleepwalked and I stood over. Her. She <laughs> woke oh, up. She woke wow. up. I was standing over and then I just went back to bed. What and the hell? Told, I know she told me in the morning. I was like, I'm sorry, I guess. I saved the best for last because um, there's a mount. Nebo, which is a really super interesting story. I spent a lot of time just reading whatever uh, unsubstantiated stuff on this, but it's very interesting. Um, that is an area that's just outside of Athens, um, but it is uh, the and, and there's like there's a good amount of like I don't know, documentation of it, but um, 
the Coons family moved there during the mid-1800s, which was during the height of spiritualism when people would like regularly have seance parties. That was just kind of in vogue at the time. You know, not so cool now. But um, the family felt that they were instructed, that, which was the mother and father and their nine children. Mm. Um, they were... Uh, they, felt they were haunted. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> It's true. I mean, it must have been hard back then. But, I mean, they, the, the father of the family felt as though they were instructed to build a spirit room. And that spirit room became very famous within the spiritualism, like, uh, community. People would travel from out of state, like, hundreds of miles to this because the seances were so, were supposed to be so um successful i guess is the only way to put it because um they they stocked the room with instruments and they would start the seance they turn off the lights and then supposedly the instruments like horns all types of whatever made 1800 style instruments i guess would start playing all by themselves and they'd be circling around the crowd yeah it's pretty freaky pretty freaky yeah it was pretty weird other big thing that would happen is that um there like these like luminous appendages would appear and they would write like things super duper fast that's pretty freaky, right? Um, the funny part was a family, a, another family in this region opened up kind of like, I guess you don't want to say it's a competitive seance place, but it kind of was. And people would go there and they were like real upset that there were no uh, like ghostly appendages. Like that just wasn't a part of the things that happened there, I guess. But um, they never made any money off of it. Um, and these were long, I, I don't know, it's 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 hard to explain because there's a lot of people that said stuff happened. I don't know. It was back in the mid 1800s. It was probably a lot easier to pull stuff off on people, but like I'm not sure. Where is Mount Nebo? Well, Mount Nebo is outside of Chansey on Sandridge Road, and it is supposed to be the highest point in Athens County. Cool. I'm not going there, but cool. And you were talking about um, the Coons room, I, even though I wasn't listening because the spooky stuff <laughs> makes me queasy. But you said Ohio University published a book? Yeah, it's called The Enchanted Ground, The uh, Spirit Room of Jonathan Coons by Sharon Hatfield, who um, our own Jan Hodson interviewed on the author's chair. Which is another podcast brought to you by WOUB Public Media, which you can find on uh, NPR One or by going to woub.org slash listen. Or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm, I'm not a cop. You can get your podcast from where you want. <laughs> True. The other one that was really freaky to me was the Sim Cemetery, which is supposed to be one of the haunted places, most haunted places in the country, and it's supposed to supposedly move all over when you go to find it. Like you can't find it because, and then when you come back, it's easy to get lost because it seems to change location all the Wait time. Wait a minute, what? And that can't be true, right? But um, I don't know. It was named for Judge John Sims, who apparently was big on hanging people, so there would be a lot of people hanging from from trees for really my yeah so that's freaky that's freaky um that's what i got <laughs> oh, i used to live in a haunted apartment yes yeah. let's do yeah. this All the haunted apartment story was dating a guy at the time and we moved into an apartment um around sort of by san diego state university and it was a, it was a nice apartment it was a six-month lease and um there was a weird hot spot in the bedroom, mm. I don't know what that was all about <laughs> on the you know floor, what? but you know uh, what? <laughs> 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 but anyway, but so I would so I would come one I would come home. So one time I came home, and um, there was Susan's lost it. There was all the lights were on in the house in the apartment. The music was blaring, and so I w- walk in and like I don't know where David, my ex, I don't know where he was. He 
was in the living room, wasn't in the kitchen, went to the bedroom. It was a one-bedroom apartment, not in the bedroom. He was in the bathroom taking a shower. And I was like, what is going on? Why is, like, the music, like, blaring on? Every single light is on in the house, in the apartment. And he was like, oh, th-. he basically said, thank, th- thank God you're, you're home now. I'm like, what? So what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, I, I was like, why, why is lights on? Why is the music going? And he's like, that's what I used to do because he used to, he's the childhood home that he grew up in was also haunted. Um, or he would see spirits. And he said, that's what I would do when I would see spirits in my parents' house. So that's what I, I did now. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? So he proceeded to tell me the story about how he was, um, so we didn't have apartment in our, uh, we didn't have uh, air conditioning in our apartment. And it, we moved in over the summer, so our bedroom would get really hot. So we ended up ended up taking air mattress and sleeping in the um, living room because it was cooler. And so we were sleep. We were sleeping in the living room because it was hot. It was hot, you know, hot summer nights. And um, he was taking a nap. He said he was taking a nap in the uh, on the air mattress. And um, he said he woke up and he looked across the room. And I had we had a desk set up and had a big like leather executive chair. And he says he looked up and uh, he looked across the room and the chair, the back was to him and the chair turned around by itself to face him. And uh, we had other incidents at the time. So we, well, someone we started calling the man, he said the man was sitting in the chair. And so he, you know, afraid whatever, got up, went to the kitchen to like get a glass of water to drink. And then we had just come- Why would you get up? Oh, <laughs> 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 That's why I don't like can't yell at things like that. For, for the listener at home, when Allison spoke, Susan Allison damn yelled. near jumped out of a chair. <laughs> Atish, continue. Okay, so he went to the kitchen to get a, a glass of water, and because he thought maybe he had dreamed it or whatever, and so he went up to get a drink a glass of water, and we had just cooked like some pasta or something the night before, so we had a big shiny stock pot in the kitchen in the sink. And so he went to the sink to uh, get some water, and he saw in the reflection of the stock pot the man standing behind him. The hell! <laughs> and so that at that point he's that's when he really freaked out because at first he thought maybe seeing the man in the chair was like part of a dream because he was just waking up from a nap or whatever. He thought maybe he dreamed it. Definitely said he was awake for the kitchen incident. So that's when he decided to turn on all the lights, turn on all the music and jump in the shower. And so that's how, where I found him when I came home. Has he seen the movie Psycho? Because I don't jump in the shower when I'm scared of something. <laughs> right. uh, and so, yeah, and so that was that one of multiple things that would happen. Like, he would have bad dreams um, and would be talking in his sleep or having bad dreams about the man. Um, and um, the dreams, he would always have the bad dreams about the man only when we were, like they were like very location specific. So when we were, when they first started, the dreams first started, we were sleeping in the bedroom and the, the man would be in the bedroom. And then when we moved to the living room because it was cooler out there to sleep at night, the man would be trying to get him to come into the bedroom. Oh hell, what the hell? And yeah, uh. like the dreams would be about the man trying to get him to come into the bedroom. And then um, one time I was like really freaked How out about times it. How many Why did you move? Well, I don't wait, understand well, what's going on. Oh, oh my gosh. Months, so one time I put Shh. salt around the bed. We put salt around wow. the, the air mattress. Yeah. 
because you know supposedly Ra- Saul's is supposed to like protect you from spirits and stuff. That night he had a dream about the man. So that that night he had a dream about the man like not being able to get to him. I think that yeah, it was like that night he had a dream about the man not being able to get to him and trying to get him to come to the bedroom. So it was like like you would do things and then he would have dreams that were sort of like related to what you were doing. Wow. Sort of. Um, and so I actually, I got so concerned about it that I, uh, and then if he would wake up, he'd be talking to sleep or whatever, I would try to wake him up and he would, I couldn't wake him up. I literally was like, could not wake him up. And he would be talking or muttering. And the, and one time I was trying to wake him up and the more I talked to him or the more I tried to like wake him up, the more agitated he got and more like, like kind of scared. And um, he would tell me like, the next day he would tell me like you know i could hear you but the man could hear you too and every time like he would like he would focus his attention on you wherever like you'd get more upset and i would get upset about that and all this stuff and so the man supposedly had no like all black eyes like dressed in like old like tattered clothes and one dream he had was uh so we were in he was in the bedroom we we're sleeping in the bedroom and there was like a man and a woman and the man was on my side of the bed and the woman was on his side and he woke up he said and they were standing they're just standing there and he kept asking what they want what they want what they want and they were just weren't answering him and all of a sudden like the man who was on my side of the bed pointed to him and said your soul and then like they like did a fast forward thing whatever and like went to his side of the bed and whatever that's when he woke up so anyway i actually asked our landlord like what's the law about like bad stuff happened in your apartment and like when you're what you're supposed to legally tell me about like if someone died or something like that and she actually said that uh, well by law we're supposed to I think it's like seven years in California um, if something's happened within seven years we're supposed to tell you and so I would have told you when you lease the apartment and I've been here for like I think she's maybe like for 10 years or something like that and nothing's happened in this apartment complex that I know of since I've lived here and that was like I don't know 10 years or something like that so I was like, okay, so I don't know. But it was just, like, really weird. And I think that was just his subconscious. He wanted to break up with you. Ma- no. <laughs> and so we never, that man, we never, he never had, so, and then after our six-month lease was, lease was up, we moved into his parents' house, and we, he never had that dream about the man or anything like that. Again, that all went away, but then there was a, also a, a spirit, an old spirit. What the hell? Spirit in the in his other house, so that was just sort of like he sees dead people. Benign, yeah. He Did you date Haley Joel Osment? <laughs> right, and I, he remembers as a kid, like he he and his sisters would see um, spirits. I mean, in the house he grew up in, his sister saw the spirits too. His mom apparently he told me we learned that his mom when it was his mom was really young would also see see spirits. So I believe so they have that, the gift. Yeah, I believe that there, it, probably if you have a gift or you have an ability and maybe goes down through like your family line and stuff like that i think you have you just to gotta be believe tuned. i'm so, not in tuned enough to to pick up on that stuff that's my belief i don't know but yeah so so what have we learned from this um okay. i don't know what we've learned here but i'm freaked out i don't know about david and his family um it's not for me to know no disrespect <laughs> to anyone in this plane or another plane i don't like that stuff i'm not gonna sleep tonight so I'm going to sleep because y'all are messing around with that stuff. Like, you should have been moved out. I don't even understand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even understand. Well, Some sometimes, things. honestly, like, you can't afford to, Some like, things are cultural. To, to, to move out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are cultural. Let me let it be that. <laughs> 
Emily, thank you for being here and yeah, for creeping us out or creeping me out. I'm not creeped out. I rebuke it. <laughs> All right. Halloween. Right. No, so almost. It, Right, things to do. This is a spooky time of year, I guess, for all those who get into that. Again, some things are cultural. Four Five Seven SEO is produced in the WOUB Public Media's Telemix Studio. Adam Rich is the audio supervisor. Aaron Payne, Aaron, is the editor, and Nathan McGuire created the music. You can find previous episodes of Four Five Seven SEO wherever you get podcasts, and includes Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or woub.org/listen or woub.org where you can search Four Five Seven SEO. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Atish Baidya. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Susan Tevin. And I'm Allison Hunter. Thanks. Bye. Nailed it. I totally almost said I'm Allison Hunter. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done this in six <laughs> <laughs> so I just forgot who I am. <laughs>